Hey, Hattrick fans. Merry Christmas. Happy Boxing Day. Can I say that? Happy Boxing Day? Is that a thing? I think so. Well, it's a holiday. We have a very special episode for you here on the last Monday of 2022. This is our best of the year. We did this last year. We had a lot of fun doing it. Each one of us has picked uh, one of our favorite topics from over all of the shows we did from across the year. Uh, and we've each picked it. We've, we've, we've brought it back out of the archive and laid it into one little show for you here. So a very special final episode of the 2022 year. Uh, and before we get you know bogged down with any more of uh, what I have to say, let's throw it to Elliot. Elliot, you get to pick the very first topic of our very special best of 2022. Yeah, so I'm going to go with a, a topic that I thought was a lot of fun to do. The three of us um, got together and, and we decided we played a little hypothetical game over the summer. Of course, Ryan McLeod, Jesse Pugliarvi and, and Kyler Yamamoto were all restricted free agents this year. And at times it didn't feel as though we were going to keep get to keep all of them. Now, obviously, history has shown that the Oilers found a way to keep all three. But we created this awesome hypothetical, which we called, you can only pick one. We each were assigned one of the players and we had to argue on behalf of our player as to be why they should be the only restricted free agent uh, that the Oilers keep if they could only keep one. It was definitely one of the hottest conversations that we had throughout the year. Uh, And I think hilariously we all could have made arguments for and against all three so it was sort of fun to maybe argue on the side of something that we didn't necessarily believe in Um, but it was a really fiery conversation it was a lot of fun it was very funny and uh and ultimately meant nothing in the grand scheme of things um but uh (laughs) was a good example of of the three of us kind of getting into it on, on a really uh, uh, tumultuous topic and one of those fun hypotheticals that we do every once in a while on the show that's uh, that's really fun to do. So enjoy. You can only pick one from this summer. It's the offseason for the Edmonton Oilers. There are some very big decisions that Ken Holland has to make and that the organization needs to make about some of their young talent who are on expiring deals. Obviously, there are bigger pieces we're, we, we're not going to talk about today. Evander Kane, will he, won't he be able to stay? Will they, will they be able to afford him? We're not going to talk about goaltending. We're not going to talk about any of those things. We're going to talk about three specific players who are were all at different points in the season and in the playoffs, very valuable for the Oilers, very um, competitive for the Oilers, but I would also argue uh, not controversial, but definitely like lightning rods for conversation for lots of different reasons. Good, bad, ugly. Those are three players that I want to talk about because all three are in expiring contracts are Ryan McLeod, Yessi Pugliarvi, and Kyler Yamamoto. They are all very similar in age, uh, young players under 25 and players who are clearly proven themselves to be NHL caliber players. The question is, if you can only keep one, who is it? I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying the Oilers won't find a way to keep two, maybe all three. But if you can only keep one, who's it going to be? We've each taken one of those players to champion. I'm going to go to Elliot first. Elliot, I know that yours is very controversial for a lot of people. I want to know why you believe if we can only keep one, it has to be Jesse Pugliarvi. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, this is really tricky, right? All three of these players are very good, and they're all very good at different things. And as you said, at different times throughout the season have been, you know, impactful players. The reason why I think Jesse Bouliarvi is the way to go is that I think he has the highest upside of the three players. He, where he is the biggest player, and that 
Size does matter, and he has the potential to be a really meaningful, engaged power forward. And when he has played like that this year and in years previous, he's been immensely successful. When they've put him in front of the net in the power play, or when he's been fighting board battles down the side, he has been very successful. Where he lacks is a little bit in his skills and his skills coach, but that's what a skills coach is for. And what I like about Jesse Pugliarvi is that it seems like every time he's lacking at something or there's something that he's not uh, doing up to standard, uh, he, he will get called out on it <laughs> and, and uh, you know, by his coaches and his teammates, and then he corrects it and works to correct it. So playing physical or being a big body or, uh, you know, not uh, backing down in board battles. We saw that be an immense, you know, grow in his game this year and it was incredibly, impact, incredibly impactful. Um, he got a push to be more physical in the playoffs and in the, la- in the latter half of the series with Colorado, he was. Did he miss some big shots and some big opportunities to score? Absolutely. But he also scored in the playoffs too and proved he compete in that level. And I think in terms of size and actual upside, also, the fact that he's probably going to be the cheapest of the three, uh, and for a team that's really up against it from a cap standpoint, that might be something that's really valuable to the team as well, too. That's why I think Jesse Pugliari is the one to go. All right, Braden, uh, you are taking Kyler Yamamoto. Tell me why we should keep Yamo. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's, I think it's obvious. I think it's very clear that Yamo's got the most skill of these, these three RFAs. Uh, He put up a 41-point season with 20 goals and played all but one game this year. That's massive. And and it showed. I mean, he he was a a really important impact player on the the right side for like three different lines throughout the year. He could play on every single line there. The guys trust him. I think what makes Yamo, although he's undersized, there's such a fight in his play. I, th- I love what he does um, uh, offensively. He, he keeps plays alive. His puck pressure is, 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 is excellent. Um, I mean, w- one counter to this is Yamo's now given a uh, reason for his asset value to be a lot higher than the other two players. I, I think McLeod also kind of is, is in that category. It's going to be harder to move uh uh, a Pugliarvi as it would be probably with stats and the way that he's been playing. I think if the others can keep ammo, they should do everything that they can uh, to make that happen. All right. So I'm going to take Ryan McLeod and I'm, I'm going to say three things. Number one, uh, speed. He is oh. the fastest of all three of these guys on a team that we criticized about two years ago for not being able to play at full tempo. We obviously have the fastest player in the world in Connor McDavid, but this team lacked the ability to be able to attack at speed and whether he's playing with Connor, which we did see a couple of times, but more importantly, when he is not, he's able to push and generate scoring opportunities with his feet more so than any other player on the roster outside of Connor. He's an incredibly explosive player. Number two, I think he has the most upside in terms of potential. Does he yet, has he yet gotten to where Yamamoto has shown he's capable of it at the NHL level? No, but Ryan McLeod has come on so quickly and so fast in the last two years, uh, only played 71 games this year with the Oilers started the season in Bakersfield, but when he came up, he made himself completely uh, essential to what they were doing. He was able to drive a line as a centerman, make sure that he was getting better in the face-off circle. We saw some big face-off wins for him in game four of the 
you know, the, 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 uh, what ended up being the, the deciding game for, for Colorado, but as a young player at only 22 years old, to be able to go into a playoff series and, and hold your own in a face-off dot is important. This is what this team needs moving forward. I know that he holds more potential uh, than what we've actually yet seen in, in terms of Yamo and Pugliarvi. I think that's just about opportunity. However, again, at 22 years old to go in and play, 16 playoff games have four goal for, pardon me, four points, three goals and an assist. And, and all three of those goals were important, big game goals and moments when the Oilers needed them. He was able to show that he can play on the biggest stage. And the third thing I think is that when it comes to what the Oilers have lacked over the last few years too, is it's genuine, uh, homegrown, um, drafted, developed, and kept centerman. And that is something that is hard to get in this league. It's the, the only thing harder is goaltending, but to be able to actually develop and keep your own NHL quality centerman is hard to do. He is a true centerman. He is not Kyler and, and Yessi are both wingers by, by, you know, the way they've always played. Ryan McLeod is a centerman. And I think that that has to go into the column for him. That's my, that's my first pitch. I, um, I'm going to do this really quickly. Here's what we'll do. I'm going to give Elliot you a second to pick either Ryan McLeod or Yamamoto and give us the reason why you think Pugliarvi should stay instead of one or the other. And then I'll let the other person uh, defend that. You've got uh, 30 seconds. Go. Well, I think that I would take uh, Yessi over Kyler Yamamoto. And, and I think we've all sort of this, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think we've all agreed that, Yamamoto is the most skilled. Ryan McLeod's the most, the, the quickest. And yes, he's the biggest. And I think that there's it, no question about that. Yeah. Yeah. He is. <laughs> he's got a big boot. And but, I think in, 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 in today's modern NHL game, um, you need size to be able to compete. And while I do accept that Yamamoto had a good playoff start, he did fall away towards the end and was actually concussed and hurt. Um, you know, if, for the final game that the Oilers played. And I think that, you know, he is not Martin St. Louis. And I, I think he's going to get bad. He's, he's, he's a injury prone. And I think he will continue to get banged up in the NHL. And for what you're going to have to pay him for that kind of liability, I think that's why yes, he is the better. Oh, my goodness. So, Braden, do you want to respond to that? Absolutely. I think there's you have 30 no seconds. Merit. Go. There's no absolute no merit in anything that you just said. You said it's injury prone. He played 81 games this season. You said Jesse Pogliarvi had more upside in the playoffs. He had five points. He was absolutely pathetic in the playoffs this year. And he has been the last two years that we've been in the playoffs with Jesse Pugliarvi. Pugliarvi does some things off the puck well, yes, but I think he is much more of a liability on your team right now, trying to win a championship. And when you look at what he plays and on right wing, We've got a guy coming up, Xavier Burgo, we just drafted. He won't make the show next year, but he just won the, he, they just won their, the QMGHL on his back. This, like, he, he, Jesse is expendable right now, and I don't think that you try to, to hold on to him. I mean, the, all right. All right. That's your 30 seconds. You did it. well. You, you did very well, Braden. I'm going to let you now take a, a shot at, uh, you kind of just took it at Pugliarvi. So I'm going to assume you're going to go after McLeod, but you can take another shot at Pugliarvi if you want. But tell me why you should keep Yamamoto specifically over one or the other of these two other players. Well, I think you absolutely keep Ryan McLeod. I think, I think it's Pugliarvi. I, I mean, if you can afford both McLeod and Yamo, I think that that is an absolute upside for the Oilers moving forward. 
I think Jesse has to, to help this team moving forward. That's pretty much it. I mean, you've said everything that I agree with with McLeod. He's fast. And what's cool about that is he makes it seem, it, it seems like McDavid's on the ice. And I think it surprises players that all of a sudden see this burst of speed and it's not McDavid. Um, the MC on the back also helps confuse players. But I think Kyler Yamamoto and Ryan McLeod are the two guys that you, you try to hold right. on to with these RFAs. So, Thank you. Uh, I'm not going to let Ellie respond to that because the two of you are basically going after each other. So let me jump in here for fun. Um, really quickly, though, two things. Number one, Yessi Pugliarvi played the least regular season minutes of any of these three players. Don't tell me he's not injury prone. Number two, Braden, you gave Yessi Pugliarvi five points in the playoffs. He had three points in the playoffs. He had two the previous year. He oh, had I think five two, total, yeah, total for the yeah. career. Yeah, that's not great. All yeah. right. Here's the thing, though. Ryan McLeod. The reason we're keeping Ryan McLeod is because of his speed, his center men ability and what he brings offensively. However, I have to side with Elliot in the sense that I do believe that size is still important on the, on the wings. And I would argue that if you're keeping Ryan McLeod, you don't need Kyler Yamamoto. Kyler Yamamoto is a very, very talented player. And look, uh, let's be honest. All three of us would love to keep all three of these guys. I think that's fair. I don't no, think any no, of- no, no. I, I don't want to keep Yasipuli Arvi. I don't think wow. that that's helpful for the team moving forward. I think that he showed, he showed, he did not show up in the playoffs at all. I think, I think, yes. Okay. I'm not going to try to defend Elliot's cleric, but, but just for a sec, I do think Jesse Pugliarvi has a lot <laughs> of things. physical traits he needs to grow into. He always looks a little bit like a deer on skates for me. He's always a little bit out of control. If he could get that whole body dialed in and, and, and play like a Ryan Getzlav, like size wise, he'd be phenomenal. The thing I was trying to say though, about Kyler Yamamoto is my, my, my issue with Yamamoto has nothing to do with his stats. He's a fen- phenomenal player. Like he, he put up 41 points this year. He had a career year. He's going to be a superstar in this league. The challenge is that what the Oilers desperately need is a genuine uh, winger who can play on the top line night in and night out. They need a Vander Kane. They need a player like that moving forward. And the, the challenge you have on this team is we have to look at it in two groups. You've got your top six and your bottom six. Yamamoto by all definitions skill-wise should be a top six player, but he's not a top six player on this current roster consistently enough. He hasn't been able to, to make it work. We were shuffling him around all year. So he's the piece that I don't, that I think you need to find a replacement for more so than a centerman. And I'll go back to that point again, centermen are the hardest thing oh, for sure. to find. And that's why for me, McLeod has to stay. And if it's going to be Yessi or, or Yamo going, then it's one or the other. Elliot, and like I'll give I you- said too, like Yamo's got the higher trade asset value right now. So that, that is something to consider. All right, we're going to really quickly do our closing statements here because this is a very formal and um, and properly organized debate. So I'm going to we're going to do this in the reverse order. I made Elliot go first uh, on his opening statement, so we'll give him the final word. I will go first. In closing, I believe that Ryan McLeod is the one of these three players that you must keep because I think that in the end, when the Edmonton Oilers find themselves back in the Western Conference Finals next year, and they find themselves in a deciding game in overtime, and there is a face-off in their own zone, you want a centerman you can count on to go back there and win that face-off. And of all of the young players coming up for the Edmonton Oilers, and certainly all three of these guys here, I feel more confident knowing that Ryan McLeod is back there taking that face-off than any of the other two here or any other young centerman we have in the system. Ryan McLeod, to me, has the most upside. I have never seen a player come out of the minor league and into the NHL for the Oilers as 
prolifically and as efficiently as he has in the last two years, every single minute he's played at the NHL, I have thought he believed he belonged there. Yeah. And, and I really truly believe that, 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 that will continue to, he will just continue to get better and better and better. Ryan McLeod must be on the Edmonton Oilers roster next year. I rest my case. Braden, Kylie Yamamoto, uh, closing statements. Yeah, Kyler, for sure. I think that I think the team is better with him. Uh, it's, I mean, he proved it on the stat sheet. He proved it on three different lines this year. He stayed healthy. Uh, he's feisty. He, he he doesn't shy away from battles. He hits. He does everything you want on the ice. And if if that can continue to help the Edmonton Oilers win, then that's what you do to uh, you, you try to keep him. And if they can win by trading him or moving him, then I guess that is also an option because of how valuable he is as a player. Um, to argue your point about coming into the NHL from the minors, I think we're going to see incredible excitement with Dylan Holloway, but that's not who we're talking about. All right. Thank you. That was very helpful. Uh, <laughs> Elliot, the floor we're is yours. talking about all the wrong things. So we really need to be talking about the goaltending here soon. <laughs> Elliot, the floor is yours. You know, ultimately, you know, the, the truth is... Jesse always, Pugliari played goal. Yeah, he could play Because then there's an argument. Right. Look, he could he could potentially play goal because of his best attribute, his size. His size. It's <laughs> about being big and tough. And uh, he's got all of the uh, physical attributes, the intangibles, the things you can't coach. It's just about getting him to a, a, a level, um, you know, where his skill is at an NHL level. And I think that he's totally, there's totally the potential to do it. And if we're going to be looking at multiple playoff runs year over year over year, you need someone big and durable. And I think yes, RV is the way to go with that. Plus, just get him I know it's your closing statements, but I have to ask you a question. Have you ever seen a player, though, as big as that who looks more confused when he <laughs> meets contact? Yeah. Like someone pushes or shove him and he literally looks like he thought they were playing tennis. Yeah. Yakupov is a bit like that. Too. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But anyway, I've never seen anyone like lick their brains as much either. His yeah, tongue is always up his nose. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a long tongue. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. I don't think we've come to any kind of consensus, but the great news is this. None we of us have to <laughs> have to. That's right. <laughs> we will wait and see what Ken Holland has uh, in store for the Edmonton Oilers in the uh, offseason. And I'm sure we will have plenty more conversations about it. That was our very first and maybe only ever, although it was kind of a fun game. Addition uh, uh, of what did I call the game? You can only keep one. <laughs> All right, for topic two, I was reminded of this selection that I want to make based on something that happened two weeks ago. Uh, one of our favorite new Oiler newcomers, Clem Costin, was uh, doing a, a presser before the St. Louis Blues game, and he so kindly um, asked Jim Matheson, or should I say called Jim Matheson out and said, I don't think the fans like your questions. And so, uh, and then, and then telling him that he needs to change something. This reminded me of a really great topic that Jordan did. Um, and I say Jordan specifically because it is only Jordan on this episode, but there was a fantastic rant Jordan uh, gave on topic called old media. He goes off on the Edmonton Oilers media ranting about the lack of substance and creativity in the current crop of beat reporting. I'm frustrated and I'm annoyed and I'm tired <laughs> of the Edmonton Oilers media, the media that is dedicated to surrounding this organization and, and covering them. 
Look, we all know that sports media is never going to be the kind of hard hitting journalism we would expect around the political uh, arena or around other types of industry. However, it is one of the most consumed, one of the most uh, sort of uh, well funded and organized in this country as far as the amount of attention and energy that uh, it it elicits. The organizations who uh, employ these these reporters these uh, columnists, these radio hosts, the organizations that create this content, you know, they are massive. We're talking Bell. We're talking Rogers, uh, the CBC when it's Hockey Night in Canada, although that's really Rogers, Post Media, uh, now The Athletic, which, of course, is owned by The New York Times. But a lot of these organizations are mass producing sports related content. They've got a lot of. Uh, these journalists in there. However, there are always these beat reporters, these day-to-day in the trenches kind of guys. And for a long time, those individuals were were sort of like the lifeblood of a fan base. They were the they were the people people turned to first thing in the morning when they flipped open the newspaper in Edmonton, whether it was the Sun or the Journal. Well, over time, you know. It, it, it continued to grow into a more sort of diverse ecosystem. You had sports talk radio again in Edmonton, 630 Ched, TSN. I think at one point there was like a team 1040 or something. Now there's TSN radio. There is no sports net radio in Edmonton, but I know in bigger markets like Vancouver or in Toronto, there's, there's a bit more diversity, let's say in terms of the sports talk radio. Now, obviously that's also evolved into podcasting, like what you're listening to right now. We are not, however, you know, accredited, um, reporters for the Edmonton Oilers. We do not get to uh, go into the locker room at the end of the game and interview players. We do not get to have the access that these bigger conglomerates and their reporters get. And of course, over time, it became the internet too. That's the big thing. It became the internet. And when the internet, I think what the internet has changed is the immediacy with which these people are interacting. So obviously you have Twitter, you have social media, but you also have you know articles going up Rather than to deadline and then they'd be printed and you'd see them the next day, they're up 20 minutes after the game, game reviews, you know, all of this kind of stuff. As much as there has been a proliferation of the amount of content, a democratization of voices surrounding these sports, I think at the same time, there has also been, I think that the actual content has been diluted. Um, It's been dumbed down and simplified, whether that's because it needs to be communicated in a tweet or whether it's just the the sheer speed at which the content must become available, we're losing some of the actual substance. And what I think is frustrating about that is that it, we're, we're kind of okay with it, or we've kind of accepted it as, as the norm. And I wanted to take a moment here to kind of call out, especially Edmonton's media, because that's the media I consume. There are a lot of people there who I'm sure work very hard to do really good work. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of them have become complacent and they have become comfortable in the roles they have. I think back to last year and the press conference that Leon Dreisaitl and Jim Matheson kind of got into it at. If you recall, Jim Matheson asked him kind of a pointed question about why he was, uh, you know, wh- whether or not, you know, the Oilers liked the sort of situation they were in. And Leon flipped back. Uh, somewhat sarcastically that, yeah, obviously we love losing 5-1 or whatever the quote was. And Jim kind of pushed back and said, why are you so pissy? And Leon for a moment was kind of surprised and then retorted right back, you know, 
And you had this awkward exchange where an athlete stood up for themselves in a moment and the reporter kind of stood up for themselves, to be fair. But the way in which the whole exchange went down came off very, very petty both ways. And it was interesting for me to see the fallout of that because you had the media, especially the national media, including TSN and Sportsnet, who are the big, big players in this kind of come out and defend the journalist first and be like, well, he's just trying to do his job and the athlete shouldn't get so chippy with him. And I'd like to, ref- I, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit at the time, but I, I, I think that this is actually a, like a little microcosm of a bigger issue, which is the fact that I think we have lost the relationship between what these journalists job actually is and what the athletes expectation in terms of that transaction is. Obviously, they have an obligation to go get quotes, try to fluff up their story with player, uh, you know, responses. They've already they've already decided what opinion they're going to put into the piece that they're writing. Now they're just looking for that that post game quote that they can fill it in, give it a little color. And the athletes recognizing that obviously these people covering this is beneficial to the sport because if they didn't have this coverage, perhaps you know they wouldn't grow their audience and la 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 la. The truth being that this is and this is where I'm frustrated. What we've lost or, or, or misunderstood about the current relationship is that the actual content creators out there for whom fans are going to are no longer these major uh, publications. No one is reading Jim Matheson with the same ferocity that they did 20 years ago when it was the only thing to read. And, and instead of trying to make better content to dig a little bit deeper, I think Jim Matheson is trying to be the blogger. And that doesn't work because you're not a blogger. The new audience, the new growth is actually happening around or, or you know websites like Oilers Nation or in a different market, you know Canucks Nation or or Flames Nation or whatever. Blog-based things. They're going to podcasts like us, they're going to podcasts uh like other people uh who are creating content from a fan perspective, talking about things fans are actually thinking about and caring about. And that doesn't happen. The next thing I wanted to talk about with this specifically though is when you do have those journalists in the room, it's because they're credentialed. And when they're credentialed, they have an obligation, in my opinion, to actually hold that organization to task and not just for what's happening on the ice, but in terms of the actual overall organization. You know, we've talked a lot on this show about how uh, Jim, uh, we've talked a lot on this show about how Rick Westhead and uh, his reporting with, with TSN has really opened our eyes to some of the bigger issues surrounding hockey. And what's frustrating or disappointing is that when you have opportunities from these other journalists to actually go and say something and do something about it, they just don't know how to do that, right? They don't know how to have those conversations. Um, And that's okay. That's not what they're necessarily a skill set. But what I am frustrated by is that there aren't other people stepping up to do that work for them organization by organization. Hold these guys accountable when they are making bad decisions from a hockey perspective, from a business perspective, or when they have employees who should be held accountable for other issues. I'm thinking Bob Nicholson. Why has nobody ever asked Bob Nicholson about his responsibility in this Team Canada situation? That is the role of those beat reporters. You are covering this team. You should be asking those questions. I'm going to leave that for one second. I'm going to get to my final point because I don't need this show to drag on and on and on and on when it's only my voice you're hearing. I would like to say this too. I think that the Oilers media is is very quickly devolving into a mob of singular ideas. 
What do I mean by that? I mean that when the sort of let's let's call them like the upper echelon of Euler reporters, the people who have the most access, we would consider them, quote unquote, insiders. And they're probably the most senior writers and reporters there when they kind of get on an idea everybody else around them just sort of globs on and follows that down the river. There's no uh, tributaries. There's no diversion from whatever that theme or idea is. And it's so frustrating as a fan because it's so, it, it, it it's so vanilla, so bland, so lacking of any substance. I want to have, I would like as a fan to read and dig in to conversations that are substantive, fact-driven, less opinion and less observation, because guess what? There are, let's call it 35, 45,000 fans every single night watching these games critically, and they see what's right in front of them. They don't need a journalist at the end of the night to try to convince them that they have seen something they have not seen, because that journalist believes so strongly in what they think, as opposed to recognizing that what you are actually needing to dig into is to fulfill an obligation to the fan base to elicit, to illustrate, to help us see the things we ourselves cannot already see. If all you are doing is pointing out the absolute obvious, what role do you fill here? We can do that ourselves. We can go to Twitter and we can vent it ourselves and we get hung up on these specific things. Here's, here's one for a great example for you. And one of our favorite journalists on this on this show in in mark specter mark specter has tweeted since the beginning of training camp probably i don't know about a third of them have been about yesi puliarvi why why are you so strung up and hung up about a second or third line winger right now every single thing has to come pointing back to him it's like you've got some kind of weird fetish on i don't understand it the oilers can see the oiler fans can see when yes, he's successful and when he's not, that's very obvious, but you're not going to change anything. You're not going to really change anyone's opinion. I think most people's minds are made up about whether they want Yessi on the team or they don't want Yessi on the team. And what are you doing right now other than grinding an ax? And what's interesting is that it, as I said, seeps out into every other part of the media ecosystem around the, the NHL when, or around the Oilers when one of these things gets hung up on. During the game the other night, you know, you have you have Fogel and you have McLeod having a great shift. Their other line mate is Jesse Pugliarvi. And yet all the conversation post game is about how great those two guys were. Well, yes, he's on the line. He's got to be having a good game. If, he, if they're having a good game, he's clearly contributing in some fashion to that, even if it's just by forechecking. But we're hung up on these single issues. This is all we want to drive. I don't know. I just don't get it. I don't understand when we lost the critical perspective, when we lost the when we lost the ability to be aggressive about it. And maybe it was never there. Maybe that's the other thing. Maybe I am wishing for something that was never really there. Because when I look back at some of the early experiences I had interacting with Edmonton's fan base and media, there are very few examples of what I'm actually looking for right now, which is fair. My touchstone one in the current crop is Daniel Nugent Bowman, who I think is an an excellent journalist and right now is pushing hard to try to write critical thinking pieces about analytics, about deep dives on terms of what the team's actual struggles and and, and development are throughout training camp. I thought he did a very good job talking about the, you know, the the fights at the bottom of uh, the roster where you had Derek Ryan looking to continue to have a, a role on this team and things like that. So there are examples where it works, but then you get to some of these guys who have the most, the most to, 
of an audience, the, the largest audience, and their content is just so flat. It's just so it's it's just so disappointing. You know, it's Mark Spector and it's Bob Stoffer. And you've got these guys who's just like, I've heard this before. I don't need to hear it again. I don't need to hear Bob Stoffer go off again on a radio broadcast about the 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 bad officiating in the NHL. I don't, I mean, it's there. Obviously, every single fan can see it. I don't need to be told over and over again what's right in front of my eyes. That does not uh, advance the conversation. That does not grow the audience it does not improve the experience of a fan of an organization most fans are smart enough to be able to interpret what they see right in front of them and if they aren't that's fine that's their space to grow and learn and and, and become more uh, educated or more more knowledgeable fans there's space for that too but you are not doing that in this format you know i miss the days of reading joanne ireland or reading uh again reading columns that actually were talking about what they were seeing from their from their sort of elevated perspective. The reason they are a journalist writing about it as opposed to Joe Schmuck on the street and whatever he has to tweet about it, the reason people went to their, why they were paid, what they were paid to have the access they have was to actually refine, develop, and share opinions that had something to add to the conversation as opposed to the constant regurgitation of the same old idea, the same old thought, the same old perspective. And maybe it's time, and I've said this before on the show, maybe it's time for us to rethink how and and to whom access is granted. Maybe it's time to actually uh, challenge these organizations to open up those media availabilities, to open up the space, whether it's on a rotating basis. So you've got, you know, your accredited press from post media and from Sportsnet and from TSN and whatever else. What you have your accredited media because they, you know, they generate the revenue necessary when you've got all of these ad partners and, and all that shit. You have that. And then you have an, a select group of media passes available on a monthly, weekly, season basis that can go out to the bloggers, to, that can go out to the, the the podcasters and go out to the people who are creating content for fans by fans and the people that the fans are actually going to get their content from. That's the thing that I don't think these organizations recognize. If their value in terms of the access they give is based on trying to service their fan base, in terms of trying to grow their fan base or just in terms of, of, of trying to fulfill some kind of unseen, unwritten transaction, whatever the reason is, there is space. And I think it is time for that, that pool of, of observers, commentators, communicators to grow. It needs to be more diverse. It needs to be more, uh, uh, open and, and and honest as as far as what fans are actually experiencing and seeing, and I believe very strongly that if those opportunities were given, you'd be surprised with the kinds of intelligent, unique, uh, creative questions that would be asked of these these athletes and and of these organizations. You would get more from them. Um, I think that's the other thing. I think that when these athletes are asked the same bloody questions every single game, they get too comfortable in the patterns that they're in and you don't get good content. And so then it becomes more and more frustrating for those journalists. But the, what the journalists don't realize is that is the athlete isn't the problem here. The athlete isn't just holding back. He's not being pissy like Jim Matheson once accused him. It's not about that. Their, their job is to play hockey, to, to be there available for you to answer, answer your questions, 
you have an obligation to ask better questions, to write better columns, to educate and, in, and, and in, envelop the imagination of your audience, to in, increase the audience's uh, engagement with the sport itself. And that will only happen if we continue to rethink how this entire transaction occurs. That's, that's my two cents on it, or my five cents or 10 cents or however long I've been talking. And that's, I think, where it's at. I think that the, we, we should expect more as fans from the media, especially our beat reporters and the people who are bringing us content on a daily basis than we currently have. And I think that until we continue to push back and challenge them to be better, uh, they'll continue to just sit into their comfortable patterns because why wouldn't they? Okay, great. So topic three for our uh, year in review show, uh, I get the pleasure of going last Um uh, I'm going to go with a conversation that I was lucky enough to have with an unbelievable athlete and, and an absolutely wonderful ambassador for her sport, a sport that uh, a lot of us, including I think all three of the guys on our show, uh, are not necessarily very familiar with outside of the Olympic um Every, every four years, we get to watch bobsleigh. But Alyssa Rissling um, has competed at the highest level of bobsleigh, including the Olympics. And she was very kind to sit down with me, have a great conversation leading into Beijing and the Olympics that, that we got to watch in February. Uh, it was a great conversation because we got insight into both the risk that these athletes take and also just the like absolute sheer um, competitive drive that is necessary to get to that level. But she was also kind enough to share a little bit of like the, the politics, let's call it, of, of being an Olympic athlete. Obviously, she missed out on getting to go to these Olympics, which was a very difficult thing for her. Um, so she didn't hold back. And I thought it was a really great conversation. I like that she uh, was brutally honest about how terrifying going down the Whistler bobsleigh run is and uh, just a really great insight. So to finish off uh, this this year's uh, best of the year. OK, so as promised, uh, very special guest here joining us for the third topic of Hattrick this week. I have Alicia Rissling, who is an Olympian, a Canadian Olympian. She was in the 2018 Games. She joins us from Calgary. Uh, first off, thanks so much for being here, Alicia. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. So I gave a little tease off the very top of the show uh, about sort of your CV, um, but just for those who may have just jumped ahead in the show because they were excited to see you as a guest here, mm -hmm. um, you are a bobsled athlete from Canada who has been to the Olympics, um, recently, unfortunately, suffering an injury that I know held you back from training for a couple, uh, for about a year, and then of course COVID and all of that, and unfortunately just missing out on being in the Olympics this year. We will talk about that. I'm sure that that's very disappointing. However, what an amazing accomplishment um, or a, an accomplished career you've had. I went back and looked through, and I know that you know you you've you're you've become an ambassador for the sport, ambassador for women in the sport, um, but you're also just a decorated athlete to begin with. We'll get to all of that, hmm. um, but. But let's go back just just to the beginning. I know you come from an athletic family. You know, your brother's a hockey player. I know your dad was a hockey player. You've got family members and everything. Growing up for you, um, sports was really an important part of life, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my my dad's side of the family were were huge sports freaks. So my grandpa's in the South Alberta slow pitch or fast pitch hall of fame. Sorry. Um, my grandma was in the ice cage. She was a traveling um, ice dancer. Um, oh, wow. So I was on skates from two years old and my dad played pro hockey, he played uh, in the, it was called the IHL back then. And yeah, they right. played pro in, in, in Europe. And um, my little brother, of course, played for the Hitman for five years and then played in the pro in through the farm systems in the US and then played a year overseas as well. And now he's playing for Nate. So um, I'd say I'm more of a hockey family first, but um, 
unfortunately I didn't play hockey. It was like the one sport that I begged to play that they didn't put me in. Um, they put me in everything else and I played everything else all the way through, uh, high school where I had scholarship offers in four different sports. Yeah. And I know you ended up going to the university of Alberta for basketball and track. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. They and you guys got all the way to a, a national championship. Did you not? My first year we lost in the national final by four still hurts. Wow. I bet <laughs> and it we does, went to the but, tournament three out of five years as well. But so like what, pretty... I mean, just an amazing accomplishment there. Right. And I, 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 I correct me if I'm wrong, but, but like bobsleigh was never on your sort of like list of, of life goals growing up as a kid. Was that, was it a sport that you were interested in or did that kind of come later? Women didn't compete in the Olympics in bobsled until 2002. So absolutely was never on my radar. I never even heard of it. I knew nothing about it. Um, and it, it like, I, I didn't watch cool runnings until I was older. I don't know why, <laughs> how I missed out on that one. Um, but yeah, no, it was definitely nothing that even crossed my mind until uh, it would have been, you know, 2010 when um, they did a, uh, an identification camp with some of the track and field athletes at U of A. And I just happened to, I wasn't on the track team anymore. Cause I had quit just to focus solely on basketball. And, um, I kind of asked if I could go through the thing and the, the ID camp, and then Canada went on to do incredibly well in the 2010 Olympics. And I was like, Oh, we're good at this sport. Maybe this is something that'd be kind of cool to do. Totally. Going back to 2002 for a second, I have another family connection with you. I know we mentioned off the top of the show that I know your mm -hmm. father, but I believe I was in the room with your dad when you were with Kevin Lowe's kids when mm -hmm. they won the gold medal. Were you babysitting their kids that night when the men won the gold medal? Do you remember that? Um, in 2010? No, in 22. 2002. Oh, 2002. Oh, Salt Lake City. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I was like, because in 2010, all the kids were in. in no, exactly. No, there. no, no. Salt Lake yeah, City, I, they win their first gold, right? I was with your dad. Yeah. He was so excited. And I remember he actually called. He may have called you, but he ended up calling Kevin uh, out there watching the, the, the Olympics. So, you you know, goes back to that, that you've been around mm -hmm. the, the Olympics, even if you didn't know you were going to end up there right from the beginning, eh? Yeah, I've been around a lot of it. I've been very fortunate to have some pretty incredible role models. So let's jump back into your career. Once you once you sort of realized bobsleigh was an actual option or or as a sport you wanted to pursue, what was that journey like? How did you transition from being a basketball player and a track athlete? Like, how does one become a bobsledder? Um, so every single person who enters the sport of bobsled has a very unique story because again, it's not a sport you grow up doing unless you're like your family's deep into it. And there's a couple athletes on tour. There's a German and an American that like kind of like our bloodline of bobsledders, but. Um, everyone else kind of like gets thrown into it from something else. So we have a lot of players that come from football backgrounds, uh, a lot from rugby, and then a lot from track and field. Those are kind of the top three in Canada, especially that get recruited. Um, the American will recruit military, um, and like special ops, which are, oh, wow. cause they're all like in like fantastic peak condition. Um, but the crazy thing about bobsled is you have to be kind of be this unicorn because you have to be as fast in the first 30 meters as a hundred meter sprinter, but you have right. to be as strong as the strongest Olympic weightlifter there is because we're pushing a, a bobsled that weighs like 400 pounds. So, um, I, I always like was a power athlete. Like I, in basketball, I was not the best shooter. I was, I was an all around good athlete. Um, and I had the I love training. Like I love lifting weights and I love sprinting. So like this, that kind of correlated really well for me. And that's why I wanted to get in, but my journey wasn't easy because I entered the sport. I graduated from university and I took actually a year off and I applied to get into a master's program first that I didn't get into. It was med school. Um, and, uh, 
I needed a new goal. So I needed something to focus on. And I had actually not been in a gym in 14 months when I first did my, my first initial Alberta bobsled recruitment camp. Um, so I spent a year as a brakeman with team Alberta. And that was more like a year of like learning about the sport. I had to learn how you went and lost races. I had to learn how you took care of the, the sleds. I had to learn like everything. I knew nothing about it other than you just go down in a bobsled track, like down a track. That's all I knew. Um, and I just fell in love with it in that first year. And that's when I really decided that if I was going to commit some time and effort into this and I wanted to become an Olympian, um, I was going to have to do it from the front seat because I knew I was never going to be the fastest or strongest athlete that comes out to this program. It just wasn't in my genetics. So, um, I was going to have to learn the skill of actually driving the sled and that would kind of more give me a better opportunity to qualify my sled for the Olympics. Um, so the next year I was on team Alberta again, and I was just learning how to drive the sled and I practiced and practiced and practiced. And then, uh, the next year I came back and I actually got myself finally into some sort of physical conditioning so that I was able to crack the national development team and, uh, kind of just moved up the ranks from there until I was full-time on the world cup, the 2016, 17 season. So the year before the 2018 Olympics. So obviously, you know, you have to really commit yourself fully to the sport, but this isn't just an athletic sport. This is one of those sports where you have to maintain your own equipment. You've got to sort of, you know, slug it. We talk, uh, we've talked on this show a lot about sort of the struggles that some of these Olympic sports have in the off years. What Mm -hmm. is it like in that sort of that four year window when you're preparing between Olympics or in your case, the very first time when you were preparing for an Olympics, when, you know, you've obviously got competitions throughout all those seasons, but the Olympics is the, is the ultimate goal for a sport like bobsleigh, is it not? Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and like everyone gears up to peak in that fourth year, but it still requires so much time and effort and, and skill from the the four years leading up to it, because we only get to do the world cup circuit is eight, eight races a year with the last race of the year being the world championships. Whereas like in an Olympic season, it's eight races and then the Olympics. So, um, there's, there's so much effort that goes into him being an amateur athlete. And I wasn't carded, which carding is the, the structure that the government helps, uh, athletes out. And so I was a development card. So that's $900 a month that didn't even cover my rent. Um, and so like tr- trying to travel and we, and Bob said, we have to go to where the tracks are. So of course, yeah. luckily enough, like the Calgary track was around when I was going through my development, but it's not around anymore. So now all these athletes that want to get into it, it's like, they have to go to Whistler. Those are super expensive, um, Mm -hmm. to stay like you're looking at over a hundred dollars a night just for accommodations. Um, and, or you're going to park city, Utah, or you're going to Lake Placid, New York. There's so much travel that's involved. And in Europe, the very different thing is there's so many tracks that they could just drive three hours and get to a new track here. It's like, it's the closest track to drive to is 14 hours away, or yeah. I guess with there's only 12, but still you're looking like at a huge span. So that's why the Europeans are at a huge advantage for that. Um, and then, so I was trying to travel, but I was still trying to work to support myself. And I remember being on that national development team, my first year and my team fee was $7,000. And I was on my own for food when we were on the road. And, and I, I had maxed out my credit card. I had maxed out my line of credit and I had withdrawn more, more from my bank account. And it was literally like, I still was paying rent back in Calgary and I had been on the road for three months. And I remember I was like, 
which family member am I going to have to call to pay my rent this month? Like, and that's when I got my first sponsorship, like it couldn't have come through at the first, like, and it was, I will never forget. It was $2,500 and I cried. Like it, it was yeah. just like, it, because it at least gave me some leeway to get through. And then I ended up getting one shortly after that. So, um, I worked my butt off in, I actually worked in the bars in the, in the restaurant industry because it was the most amount of money I could make in the least amount of time, but those are very physical jobs. And so trying to train full time and then going to work where I'm getting 20,000 steps in because I'm running drinks around and uh, like, and staying up till five o'clock in the morning sometimes. Yeah, tough and hours, tough hours. Yeah. Yeah. And I just had to do what I had to do. But when my team expenses, I don't think there was a year that I spent less than I, I can't, I don't want to put a number on it, but I think if I look back most of the years in bobsled, I spent at least $14,000 on bobsled. And if you would have told me the, the, the cost that would have been associated, I would have never gotten into it. So I'm kind of yeah. glad I went it in blind because I just would have quit then there. Cause yeah. I was thinking about picking up hockey at when I got into bobsled and I was like, yeah. no, that's too expensive. <laughs> I didn't know that I was going to yeah. go on to purchase my own bobsled at $91,000, you know? So it just, but when you're in it that far and you're so close to your Olympic dream and you just want to prove that you deserve to be there and you want to be competitive, you do what you have to do to, and unfortunately in my sport, it's not just about your physical performance. It's also about your equipment. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great perspective that I think most people, especially, you know, in this country or frankly everywhere miss or mm -hmm. or don't think about with these these quote-unquote sort of olympic focused sports right we know mm -hmm. there's a development program that for hockey there's thousands of kids playing hockey across this country because there's a professional league and there's all these things but you think about right. the sacrifice of those athletes and we've talked on this show and other places you know like the olympics carry with them some some controversy and some baggage because of the bureaucracy and the political factors that go into this. And those shouldn't be overlooked, I think. But the, the thing we've, we've also talked about is that you have to sometimes separate the Olympics from the athletes and the reality of the struggle. Some of these athletes have gone through like in your case, financially, but also just like, you know, you, you've, you've said it, you have to dedicate yourself so deeply to a pursuit of something that you may never get to. I mean, that must've been the hardest part. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause I know you, you, you've suffered a huge disappointment this season. You're not currently in China. You're talking to us. I'm sure that that was heartbreaking, mm -hmm. but you went through a crazy journey to get even just back into shape to do that. You suffered an injury and, and, and COVID talk to me about the last two years and how we got to where we got to. Cause I know that it was, you know, again, some bureaucracy involved. <laughs> Oh, well, there always is. I mean, there's politics in every sport. So, um, after 2018, then the next season we had a home world championships and we did a really weird season. Uh, so we had a home world championships in Whistler and there is no scarier track in the world than Whistler when it's minus five and sunny. Like, it's just like, we go so much faster in Whistler than anywhere else that, um, it was, it was a tough year. And, and for whatever reason, Whistler had the coldest, crispest winter that we hosted. So we set the speed record, uh, the men's, uh, there was a, a British foreman team that went 156 kilometers an hour, which is just like insane. Like you you're free falling going that fast essentially. And, and not only that in Whistler at the bottom of the track, like you have to make your steers perfect because there's a corner called 50, 50. And if you you're not perfect there, you flip and you, like crashing, going over a hundred and crashing at any time sucks, but crashing, going at that speed is just, it's like, it exasperates everything. Like it is, it hurts. Like, and so that season, 
it's funny. I had never crashed in that corner ever in my entire career, like learning to drive set. I, I would make mistakes. I've crashed in multiple corners, but I never crashed in 50, 50. And for whatever reason that year I crashed seven times in that corner and it became, um, such a, a, a big thing for me that it, it was a form of PTSD. So I had that going on. I got to leave the track a little bit, but then I, uh, went to Europe and had some good results, had a, a gold medal on the Europa cup and, and, uh, and a bronze and, um, came back and we, we were going to spend more time in Whistler cause we were going to get ready to, for hosting our worlds. And, um, I tore my calf, like a seven centimeter tear in my calf. And this was five weeks out from worlds. Um, I spent that whole five weeks in a, in a walking cast. And so I was not doing any sprinting. I couldn't really do any heavy lifting because that your calf, you need your calf for everything. And, um, I was just trying to heal enough so that maybe I could start outside the sled in, in the race. So that pretty much knew my world champs were over in that fact. And I did, I did push, but I got held in Whistler and I kept crashing. So that kind of messed with my mental ability. So I'd say that year, when I finished that year, like I almost quit then because I was finishing that year. I was, it was a whistle world champs. I was expected to win. Um, and I came 11th and now I have PTSD, I diagnosed PTSD and I have a, a calf that just won't seem to heal. And it, I found out after when I got an MRI later that it actually had healed um, kind of off centered. So instead of like going exactly back where the tear was, it kind of healed at an angle. Um, so I had this like debilitating, um, uh, tendonitis, which is such a soft injury. And I see that in my thing, cause it's like such a thing, but I could not make it through a sprint workout for 14 months. Um, so now we're heading in, this is the, so we're heading into the next season and it's literally tryouts. And I never sprinted once the entire summer. I couldn't do it. Like I tried, I went to track practice every day and every day I tried and I never made it. I was going to physio three times a week. Um, my injury bill cost me $8,000 because I ran out of insurance so quickly. And I was so determined to like heal. Um, so I was doing everything. I was doing red light therapy. I was doing injections. I was doing all these things that I was paying personally out of pocket. Um, and I got told literally the week of tryouts that in October that, you know, we're going to offer you an injury card. So an injury card means we recommend you take this season off, you heal completely and you come back because if you don't come back in good form, you don't have a spot here anymore. Cause now we've got these up and comers coming and we need you to be in the best shape possible for the Olympic games. And I said, you know what, that's a good idea. It's your two of the quad. Um, let's just like kind of tear this thing down, rebuild from the foundation up and come back in the best shape ever for 2022. Enter global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> um, no one saw that one. Yeah, exactly. So this, that was October of 2019. And then obviously we know what happened in 2020 in the winter there. And, um, so now I've got four to six months of no physio, uh, four to six months of not working directly with my coaches. And again, we, when we tore my foundation apart, like I had to relearn how to run with a different technique. Um, and, uh, so the, obviously that whole process just got slowed. Like I was, I was making great progress and then it just got slowed down. I didn't see a trainer. I was working. Luckily I had my, a gym set up in my garage. So even though it was minus 10 outside, I was in there with gloves and a toque and <laughs> mitts on still getting my lift in. And I would, 
film it. And then I would send it to my trainer who would get back to me three days later and we'd evaluate it. And then I'd have to remember what they said when I did that same lift again the next week. So everything just kind of got delayed. And, and so when team tryouts came oh, the other worst thing was I didn't push a sled because the ice house was closed and we were barred from it. Like we weren't allowed to push in the ice house, which is an amazing facility here. Um, so when team tryouts came the next year, I was not ready to go. And I, I fully take responsibility for that. Like I was not ready to go. Um, and, uh, then they said, you know, what? doesn't matter. We're not going anyway. So team Canada said, you know, like we, they were thinking about sending us on tour anyway, we had exempt medical exemptions to go and compete. All the Europeans were competing and they just said, you know what, we're going to hold our athletes back. So now I've gone from taking a year off to taking, it ended up being 22 months between my, my international competitions. And I wasn't feeling confident getting ready to go, but you know what, this was last year. It didn't matter Mm -hmm. because it was still a year to go for the Olympics. Um, and, uh, got my races in enough to just to be qualified. You need what's called a five, three, two for this year. Um, meaning I've kind of got to keep my driver's license, my bobsled driver's (laughs) license and be eligible. Um, and I knew that the up and coming girls were going to be ready and it was going to be a battle. So I worked my butt off this year and I, I kind of threw everything I had it in it. Like I, I lost a lot of my sponsorship because I wasn't competing. So I was like, you know what, whatever debt I need to go into to afford and make sure that I'm ready to go this year, I'm not going to work because everyone else isn't working and I need to make sure that I'm ready to go. And, um, yeah, come, come the fall, we got told five days before our selections that what our selection criteria was, and it was based on push rank and I didn't have a chance anyway. So it was, uh, it was a little bit disheartening because I did feel like I was ready to go. I was, I, I was in way better shape than I was in 2018. I was the healthiest I've been. Um, I didn't quite beat my PB in, in the ice house, but I was three hundredths away, you know, like it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was not like I was way out of range. Um, and I, and that kind of just shut the door on me, but then they told me to stick around because in case somebody got sick or injured, then I was of next course, up. Yeah. yeah. So when you give someone a bone like that, like, Hey, like, okay, there's still, so you're saying there's still a chance I'm going to take it. Yeah. Um, there was no communication other than like, you can compete on the development cir- circuit and try and qualify a spot that way. And maybe you'll get a chance. And the year went by and I never got my chance. And I'm happy that those girls did really well. And I'm going to be cheering my butt off for them in in the Olympics. And I'm excited to see how they do. But it just like, it hurts when you do everything in your power to be ready. And it just still wasn't good enough, you know? Well, for sure. And as you, you know, as you explained, even just at the beginning of your career, the, the, the struggle isn't just you know, physical, it's mental, it's, it's financial, it's, it's all of mm-hmm. that time consuming. And as you know, you described that story of the last two years, I mean, how did you not just at some point throw in the towel and say, this is just too much. I could go and, you know, live a happy life, you know, just going to the gym, like every other normal person, instead of trying to, you know, rebuild my body for an elite sport that what, like the, the, how many, how many pilots do they send to the Olympics? There's, there's like three out of four of what is like, there's not that many people out of this country who are even capable of doing what you're doing and you're fighting for one spot or two spots. Yeah. So we got to send two in the brand new sport of Monobab and three in the, in two men. And, uh, this is the first time ever we've had four girls that probably and on any given day could challenge for those spots. Yeah. Which I guess isn't a, te- it's a testament to how the sports developed, but it's frustrating mm-hmm. when you're one of those four, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like, I joked, I, I said to my wife yesterday, we were watching, uh, the, the, 
snowboarding. Uh, just, you know, it's like the Olympics. You turn it on and whatever's there, you kind of get a little taste of something that you don't usually watch. And we're watching it in the Canadian woman, I think finished fifth or something. Oh, that's so disappointing. Sorry, you think yourself, no, yeah. she's like fifth in the world. What are you talking yeah. about? She's, you know, that's insane when you think about the, the, the scale of it. I want to get to the Olympics here in a second, because I do want your perspective on what the women I know, you know, are going through. But let's go back to mm-hmm. 2018 for a second. You make it to the Olympics. What does that accomplishment mean uh, as an athlete, as a person? Um, and, and yeah, just describe that for me. What's it like to, to get, you know, first to, to know you're going to go to the Olympics and the anticipation of it and then to arrive there? What's that feel like? Yeah. So 2018 was the first time that Canada had ever sent three sleds. Um, so it was a pretty amazing feat for our team because we kind of did it in unison and we were all so proud of each other. And um, it meant that eight people got to go from our team instead of just five. So that was three more people, even though they they didn't compete in the races, they were still there. They still got to walk in opening ceremonies. Um, so there was eight of us that got to go and we were just so proud to be that part. I was always sitting in a good spot. I had done pretty well in that year and I was sitting like six in the world the entire season. So um, it didn't. I, it was stressful. It was stressful trying to make sure we all got there and like work as a team. But, um, just as soon as we got, it was official. It was just, it was an amazing feeling. It was so special. And, and going to those Olympic games, like I, it, I feel for the people who this is their first Olympics because the experience they're getting in China is not what the Olympics are all about. You know, like it was, it was, you know, we had 225. That was the biggest team that Canada had ever sent to the Olympics. And, and just like being in the building, screaming Canada, like we were shaking it from underneath before we got to walk in, uh, those opening ceremonies. And, um, I'm just watching and I, I'm so happy that those guys looked legit in, the, in that Lululemon kit, but nice. you know, you couldn't tell who anyone was cause they all got big masks on and they got their, mm-hmm. their hats down. And, and I know they were like their elevators actually say like no talking like in the elevators. Cause they just don't want people to be like opening yeah. their mouths basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I got my, my best friends all came out, um, and my, my family, my uncles, like I just had a, a huge cheering squad that got to be a part of it and take it all in and, and really get the full experience in Korea. And, um, so I think for me, just the Olympics, I'd say in 2018 were the best month of my life. And the mm. best part was competing and, and actually like being at the pinnacle of my sport and reaching, that was a huge goal for me is wanting to be the best in the world at something. And, um, and the next part was walking in opening ceremonies. Cause I think that for me was the, the difference maker. Like that was watching the, uh, it was the London opening ceremonies that really inspired me to be like, no, I actually really want the opportunity to, to wear that big maple leaf. And I definitely was not the kind of basketball player that was going to have that opportunity. So, um, and then the third best part I'd say was the, <laughs> Uh, four day party that ensued when I finished my, my races and just being a part of a crew of athletes that were done all their events and we were allowed to stay the whole time. So like going and cheering on other teammates and in their events and getting to take that in and just, just living, like being so high on life and just so ecstatic mm-hmm. of being a part of this group of people was just so special. Um, and, and it was just, an overall great opportunity and the Olympics will always be the Olympics. And I think that's why people are so excited. Um, but right now what these athletes are going through in Beijing, is not even close to that. So, um, I do feel, and I hope a lot of people who are first timers will have the opportunity to go back and get the real experience next time. Yeah. So just, just on that, what is it like? So you get in there, you get to the opening ceremony, which is I'm sure just a huge party and it's super exciting. 
how many, you know, how many days from that point to the moment you had to be competing, do you sort of turn your focus into to game mode, let's say, and how does that window work? Yeah. So it's different. Every sport's different. So for me at the last Olympics, we only had the two women event. We did not have a monobob. Right. It's a brand new sport that's getting to be this year. Um, so I was uh, in Korea a couple days before, and this is the same schedule as these guys are doing right now, actually. So they got on the ice two days um, prior to the opening ceremony. So they had to be there uh, on the 26th of, of January with the Olympics starting on the fourth. So they had to be there. They had to get these, these three COVID tests. Um, and then that was the kind of the clearance where you're like entered into the village. And then, um, they had two days of training on the ice and then nothing because now it goes luges on the ice and skeletons on the ice. And then the bobs get on later, um, next week. So I know for me, when we were there last time, I didn't compete until day nine. Um, so I, I was, uh, the first three days I had, luckily I had Heather Moyes, who is an Olympic uh, legend and she kind of laid the ground rules for us, which I really appreciated. Like she, she had been through it. She knew what was really important. So the first three days we went to events, um, there was no, and I'd say like opening ceremonies is, is, is a celebration. It's not a party. Nobody's partying because everyone hasn't competed yet, you know? So everyone's right, kind of like right. crushing on. water bottles and focused and <laughs> yes, you're taking it in, but you're, you're definitely still in athlete mode. Um, and, uh, so then the first three days of, I, we went to a couple events, like I got to see, uh, Johnny Moe and Caitlin Laws win gold, um, and, uh, went and watched the team figure skating event, which was incredible and um take that in and then after three days we just like shut it down i competed late at night so my races were at nine o'clock i take about 200 milligrams of caffeine before i race so i knew that we weren't going to be sleeping until like three or four o'clock in the morning so we actually just got used to that so for the first couple of days of the olympics i was sleeping until noon 1 a or 1 p.m um, sounds lazy, but like you're doing it on purpose, right? They're oh, trying to be sure. strategic, getting ready for what acclimatize for what your race is going to be. Um, and then we'd stay up and we'd just watch events during the day in our PJs and our onesies and team Canada house sitting on being big chairs and, uh, just hanging out around the village because I, I barely had any workouts left to do because you're tapering. You're, you're already, the work has been done and you're just trying to rest and be ready to go. Um, so uh, there were a couple of days where I had uh, small workouts to do or a track warm up or something like that. And then, uh, the days that we were on the track, we were on the track all day. So you, you had to bust the 45 minutes to the track. You had to be there three hours early, um, which is earlier than you normally are. Usually we're there like two hours early. Um, you do your two training runs and then you do your sled work and your sled prep and get everything ready for that. And, um, all the materials had to be rechecked. They get checked at the beginning of the season and you don't have to worry about it again, but at the Olympics, you have to recheck them again. And then you polish your runners and yeah, it's just like a process. And then you're getting ready to race. And then so it's like 12 hour days, basically when you're on the ice and you get three days of official training before your two days of racing. So five days on the ice. Um, so that's basically like all you do. Like, I couldn't even tell you what else happened during the Olympics during those five days that I was on the ice and practicing and training just because it was like, so blinders on, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. focused on, on what I had to do. And then you spent the four days after celebrating everyone else.
Yeah. And as a pilot, I know, you know, you, you must have just like a mental map of what that track is in your head. Are you seeing it when you're like sleeping? Are you, can you see mm. every turn and every corner and what the line you want to follow is like as a pilot, it's a different kind of thing. I mean, let's just pretend people don't know anything about bobsled in your case with women's bobsled, you've got two athletes. One is pushing, one is jumping in the front and, and then piloting. How do, how does it work? Let's just, let's just pretend they know nothing about bobsled. So you got to think about it. You've heard the saying, it takes 10,000 hours to perfect your craft. So like any, any sport you grew up as a kid, you're playing, you're outside for four hours shooting pucks or, or kicking a soccer ball at a garage like I did. Um, Hmm. but in bobsled, you can't do that. Like you're, you're going down the track and each corner, I'm in each corner for like a second. So for me to get to 10,000 hours, it's physically impossible because the G forces we have in our body, like there's no way that I could have 10,000 hours of seat time in a bobsled. Like, it's just so unrealistic. Um, I don't want that much time to be honest. (laughs) Um, so like that's where visualization comes in and the mental component of being a pilot is just so important. So that's me sometimes putting my, my computer on a, a coffee table and sitting underneath it. And so it's at eye level and watching a POV and just going through. Um, if you, if you watch bobsled and you see any of the pilots in the warmups, you'll see them. They look like they're dancing with their hands. They're doing mental, mental runs. They're going down the track. They're doing their mental runs. They're, they're figuring out, you know, if they're, they're mentally mapping out, if they're going into a corner on the left side, what they're going to do versus going on the right side and fighting those pressures and feeling it. So, um, that's a huge component of what we do. I would say that absolutely. Do I do mine runs in my sleep? I do. And I hate it. And it's something that I had to work with a sports psych to make sure that I wasn't doing it because that yeah. is not the time to be doing your mind runs. That means you're stressing <laughs> yeah. it. Um, yeah. So every pilot is different in terms of like how many they do. I find that the older I got in my career and the more seat time I actually had, the less mind runs I did. But yeah. when I was a developing pilot, I was probably doing a hundred a day. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a very uh, complicated uh, vehicle, let's call it. There's no steering <laughs> yeah. wheel, right? You've got some string and some blades. Like, how how, yeah. how, uh, how how does that work? So it's a lever cable pulley system. So it's just, I pull the right rope, it turns right. I pull the left rope, it turns left. The whole thing for me is not actually about creating a steer. It's about resisting the, pre- the centripetal force that the sled is experiencing as it's going through. So you got to think when you're you're in your vehicle and you're going on an on-ramp onto, onto a freeway and how you're kind of accelerating through and you can feel the, the car fight you back. Basically I'm fighting that pressure, just holding it in my hand. And I'm trying to give a little and take a little as I go. Um, the more you steer, the more friction you create, the more you actually slow the sled down. And that's what the opposite we want to do. We want to do the least amount of steering possible on the way down, but obviously you got to keep it on forerunners. So you gotta, there's a fine line. Sometimes you end up doing what we call the bow and arrow where you're pulling it all the way back, trying to save it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not complicated, but learning a track and learning where the pressure is and learning the fast way down is the, is definitely the the complication part. Oh, for sure. So this is, I mean, we talked about how, how this year ended for you. Is this it for you in bobsled? Are you retiring? Uh, is this, is it, can you do that? Is, is this something you could just sort of turn off or is it, where are you at with all of it? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's kind of like people, I never actually officially announced my retirement, but it's kind okay. of been announced that I'm done now. So like, because I was relieved of my duties for not being a spare to go to, um, China here, but, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm done competing. Um, whether I return to the sport is still up in the sure. air. I've talked yeah. to a couple teams have, uh, 
approach me, but if I'd be interested to coach, um, and in that capacity, I would, I'm definitely open to it. I'm not saying I'm mm-hmm. going to do it for sure, but I'll always be around bobsled. I think I'm a board member for the community, uh, uh club program that there is here in Calgary. And I just always want to stay close to the sport. I just, I think that I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I just am craving some, financial stability. So I think it's time for me to move on and, and develop a career that I can feel confident building a life towards. Totally. And I guess to that, it's like, you know, what is next for you? You've, 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 you've already got yourself involved in, I know several charities and you're a huge, huge advocate for women in sport and just sport in general. Um, mm-hmm. What's next for you? Yeah. I always thought that when I was done bobsled, I'd apply to med school again, but now that I'm like this far, I'm like, there's no chance that I am going back to school. I I went back to school actually two years ago, um, or three years ago now and got a certificate in business through Queens through one of the scholarships that the COC offered us, which was pretty incredible. So, um, I, 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 finally realized it took me until I was in my thirties to realize that like, I've always loved sports so much. Why, why am I trying to not make a career out of it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what that capacity was, is going to look like I'm applying to be in sport broadcasting. I'm going to be doing some radio here during the Olympics in the next two weeks. Um, I'm going to be doing some analyst on, uh, uh for a bobsled panel on uh, CTV, just breaking down the races and how they go. Um, but my, my really true passion, I think is in hockey. So, um, I'll be applying to some teams to work on my experiences on the sponsorship and marketing side. So nice. maybe be involved in some capacity of that. And if not, hopefully be in front of a camera somewhere and, and being a broadcast or a host. Awesome. Well, we really look forward to whatever's next for you. And I, I just want to say, you know, obviously thanks for joining us with this one and, and your insight and your, your passion is inspiring. It's, it's awesome to see. Um, if I guess we'll, we'll end it this way. If you could say one thing to some kid out there, maybe a, a little girl who's watching the Olympics this time around. Right. And she's mm-hmm. watching Bob Slayer. I don't know. One of those other suicidal sports sliding down a hill. I don't know how you guys have the courage to do it, but yeah. she's watching it and she's thinking, you know, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I should do that. What would you say to her? Um, if there's anything you want to do, go do it. And don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Um, I've heard that so many times throughout my career and, and basically everything in that, uh, that a, it started when I was younger is girls don't do that or girls can't have a career in that. And, um, as I got older, it was just, Oh, you're not qualified or you're not, you don't have the, the potential, Oh, you don't have this, you don't have that. And, and for me, I think it's just constantly about proving people wrong. And because if you want it bad enough, you will make it happen. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. Okay. That is it. That is our best of the 2022 season. Uh, thank you to Elliot and Braden for making those selections. It's a little awkward that well, well, two of those topics they don't even feature in, but I was very humbled by their selections. Very kind. Look, uh, it has been a very busy year as we talked about last week. Lots went on. Uh, and there was a lot to talk about. We're going to take a, v- a very much needed uh, little holiday break here. So we will be back with a brand new episode, the first episode of 2023. It'll drop mon- Monday, uh, January 9th. So you can look for it there everywhere you get your podcasts. Until then, happy new year, Hattrick listeners. And on behalf of Braden and Elliot, thank you for listening. Hattrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. Produced every week by Jordan Dyler-Coltman and Braden Dyler-Coltman. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening.
The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.